From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, slavery and its political legacy in Congress. Here's something we didn't know until a couple of weeks ago. More than 1,700 congressmen owned black slaves. Even after the abolition of slavery in 1865, hundreds of men who had been slave owners were senators and members of the House of Representatives. The last senator to be an enslaver served in 1922. Now the Washington Post has compiled the first database of slaveholding members of Congress. Eric Foner will comment. But first, coronavirus criminals and pandemic profiteers. John Nichols will explain. That's coming up in a minute. The legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. How many people died because of the Trump administration's failed response to the coronavirus pandemic? Who exactly is responsible and for which decisions? And who made money off the crisis? John Nichols has the answers. Of course, he's Washington correspondent for the nation and the author of many books, including The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party. His new book is Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers. And it's exactly what we need right now. John, welcome back. Honor to be with you, John. Well, basic facts. How many people do we estimate died in the United States because Trump did not take the same steps as the other G7 countries? Well, you and I aren't going to do the estimate, John. We'll we'll turn to Lancet, the uh, British Medical <laughs> Journal. Yeah, and uh, they did they convened a commission to to look at these issues, and they were looking more broadly at, at healthcare in the United States and the way that governmental decisions may impact death rates and, and disease issues. They came to a number forty percent in the period from when COVID hit, and remember it 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 really hit hard in March of twenty twenty. Yeah. Uh, into the end of 2020 and when Trump's presidency uh, was coming to a conclusion, that would mean that you're looking at over 100,000 that were not necessary. People died because the president lied to them, made bad choices, put the wrong people in charge of things. Well, of course, the number one coronavirus criminal is Trump. You say he lied about the seriousness of the virus at the outset. He peddled conspiracy theories about it, and he mismanaged the response. I'd like to focus on the response part. Uh, Instead of saying hydroxychloroquine was an effective treatment for COVID and would become, quote, one of the biggest game changers in the history of medicine, what 
could he have done? What should he have done? He could have done what every other country, I shouldn't say every other country, but most other countries were doing. That was to move the scientists up front. In writing the book, I talked to uh, not just Americans, but people around the world, including some leaders of other countries. During the course of the pandemic, I interviewed uh, Katrine Jakob's daughter, who is the prime minister of Iceland. Iceland, like a number of countries led by women, uh, did very, very well in handling the early stages of the pandemic. And one of the things that uh, Katrine Jakob's daughter talked about uh, as, as a reason why Iceland did so well was that she didn't put herself up front. She put the scientists up front. She put the doctors up front. And she said in one interview, uh, because you wanted to make sure that the information that was coming was understood and trusted. And that's actually the, the key to what Trump did wrong. Your number two on your list of coronavirus criminals is uh, Mike Pence. Mike Pence, his stock is up right now with our friends because, of course, he's the hero of January 6th when Congress met to certify the Electoral College vote. Pence refused Trump's demand that he declare Trump the winner. And, of course, the mob that stormed the Capitol that day was chanting, hang Mike Pence. But you remind us that Pence was not the hero of the pandemic response. Absolutely not. In fact, would that he had at key stages during the pandemic have stood up. Remember, he was in charge of at one point, you know, Trump put all sorts of different people in charge of dealing with the pandemic at different times, including Jared Kushner. But at, at, at one point, Mike Pence was sort of the man. He was the one who I think in fairness could have stood up. He was in a position to say, uh, Mr. President, that's wrong. Now, of course, it's politically risky. I, I understand that. But at a point where you're looking at the, the prospect of hundreds of thousands of deaths, of unnecessary deaths, and a spread of disease and all the economic challenges that went there, uh, A, there's a good argument that, that Pence could have uh, argued behind closed doors for a better response. And there's very little evidence that he did. His commission that he they headed, the, the oversight agents grouping that he headed, rarely met. But then when you got to critical stages, he went out and did a cheerleading for uh, Trump's response. He wrote a, a Wall Street Journal op-ed in which he it, the second wave of the pandemic was coming. He says, oh, this isn't a second wave. You know, pay no attention to this. Maybe this is unfair to Pence. But I think people just expected him to be a little bit better than Trump. In the early days of the pandemic, the most urgent need was for protective gear for frontline health workers, especially the, the nurses in the hospitals who were surrounded by dying uh, patients, to organize the supply of PPE. Trump appointed Jared Kushner. What, remind us, what was his background in public health and medical logistics? Well, I assume he had a doctor, um, and, you know, but aside from that, it was it was non-existent. And, um, you know, look, Donald Trump turned to Jared Kushner whenever he didn't know who to put in charge of something. Peace in the you Middle know? East was my personal favorite. Yeah, and, and it certainly worked out well. <laughs> um, and but also, I mean, he was in charge of dealing with, you know, technological progress and, you know, the automation and he's, he name list a hundred things and building and the Kushner. wall. Let's not forget he, he building the wall. Yeah. Another thing that didn't happen. At a certain point, Trump was getting a lot of hits for uh, this lack of protective gear. And there were pictures in the newspaper and on, on social media 
of nurses wearing garbage bags to protect themselves, which was just it was madness. And this was not what what should be happening. And governors across the country were crying out for for help. And so, of course, Trump put Jared Kushner in charge. Jared Kushner turned to a college roommate for advice um, and uh, came up with a plan that was classic Kushner. Instead of using the power of government, and we have defense production acts and things of that nature, really using the power of government to get production up to speed in the United States, he came up with a plan to basically use U.S. resources to help multinational corporations to import uh, protective gear from other places, but without a, a, a clear signal on what they were going to do with them what they, when they got them here. And so, they, of course, what did they do? They started selling them off for a profit. And, and so it was such a mess, such a disaster, and, and the, the needed gear wasn't getting to the places where it was, was supposed to go, that um, the plan, the whole Project Airbridge was, was scrapped very, very quickly became the subject of multiple investigations in the, in the Congress. But the, the key thing to remember here, John, is that at that critical early stage, it was Jared Kushner who screwed up the supply chain. Now, he wasn't the only one. I don't want to give him 100% responsibility. But had he set up a more coherent and, and responsible approach, uh, it would undoubtedly be benefiting us to, to this day. He didn't do so as with so many things that Jerry Kushner touched, it fell apart. Your book has 17 chapters, each for one of the people who share responsibility for the, what are we going to say, 100,000 unnecessary deaths. Well, and, and since, and, and even more since then. Even more since. Striking thing to me about your 17 chapters is they aren't all about Republicans. There's Rahm Emanuel, uh, advisor to Democratic presidents, former Democratic mayor of Chicago. Why does he get a chapter in your book on coronavirus criminals? Because Rahm Emanuel preached a gospel of uh, free trade, un, pretty much unrestricted, corporate-friendly free trade, which was terrific for crony capitalism, but lousy for the public interest. And, you know, what happened is that through successive Democratic presidencies, uh, Emmanuel promoted free trade deals that encouraged the offshoring of, of U.S. production of essential gear, of, of necessary medical products and of necessary uh, protective gear that, that you'd want in, in, a, in a moment like this. We needed to continue to make certain basic items, basic pieces of protective gear, basic respirators, things like that in the United States, precisely because there might be a, a difficult or dangerous situation. Whereas those who had opposed him all along, people like Sherrod Brown, the senator from Ohio, uh, very early on said, look, here's exactly where the problem is. We don't make the things that we need now to fight against this pandemic. Obviously, the Trump administration didn't respond well Frankly, there are quite a few Democrats who, who you know, kind of couldn't break out of that old free trade mentality and did not respond well. Another person who is not a Trump supporter that's uh, featured in your book of coronavirus criminals is Jeff Bezos. Now, Jeff Bezos is actually one of Trump's most important critics. He owns the Washington Post. Slogan is democracy dies in darkness and has done a huge amount to expose the crimes of Donald Trump on, on many fronts. Uh, he's usually described as the richest man in the world. Tell us about Jeff Bezos and COVID-19. 
Well, Jeff Bezos uh, was obviously somebody we should have invested our money with uh, at the start of COVID <laughs> yes. uh, because he became exponentially wealthier. You know, it literally added you know tens of billions of dollars to his already incredible fortune. And and how did he do that? Well, he oversees a a, a warehousing network and a distribution network via Amazon that uh, has, when COVID hit, became this absolutely vital tool in the overall process of getting things to people who were locked down at home. They ordered a lot of stuff. And so his warehouses became incredibly busy. In fact, right at the point where a lot of the country was locking down and people were not, they were working from home, uh, he oversaw a network of warehouses where people had to come to work. And the interesting thing about it is those people who had to come to work Uh, at least in the early stages, recognized that they were in situations where they were not protected. And there were people who stepped up and said, look, this isn't safe. People are getting sick. People are dying. And uh, the primary initial whistleblower ended up getting fired by Amazon. There were discussions about firing that whistleblower that went all the way up the chain to the top of Amazon, to the highest level personnel talking about you know, how to shut down people who are raising concerns about health in the warehouses. Now, ultimately, during the course of the pandemic, Bezos did uh, what so many corporate CEOs and others did, uh, which is that they they blocked unionization of, of the place where they operate. Now, the bottom line is, again and again, in my book, unions come out as heroes because they were the ones who raised the alarm and, and raised the concern. But finally, also with Bezos, you had to look at just that that exponential growth in his own fortune. One of the the standout moments of the pandemic from from the standpoint of looking at it financially was that uh, there opened up a a discussion about who would be the first trillionaire because the billionaires were making so much money. During the course of the pandemic, America's billionaires increased their wealth from roughly $3 to $5 trillion. Um, and the number of billionaires increased from uh, 614 to, I think, and I hope I got the number right. I think it's uh, 745 or something like that. And that's uh, Institute for Policy Studies and Americans for Tax Fairness doing great, great research on this and charting all this. Uh, but the bottom line is that, that Bezos, uh, you know, he's, he is a, a placeholder, if you will, for the billionaires who came out incredibly well. And if I can emphasize one thing, John, you know, at the start of the pandemic, the big message was uh, shared sacrifice. We're all in this together. Uh, We're all going to have to give of ourselves to make sure that we can survive this. And so many Americans did that. They put masks on, they they went straight into emergency rooms, they drove buses, uh, they, you know, worked in meatpacking plants, and they got sick, and a lot of them died. And at the same time, our billionaire class retreated to their waterfront villas and their country homes, flipped on their computers and, you know, watched their their wealth increase. That's one of the places where there really should be a lot of accountability in the form of some very, very aggressive taxation. So we've talked here mostly about 2020 and into 2021. Uh, Let's talk about the current debate right now in the Republican Party about the pandemic response. It's pretty interesting. Just in the last couple of weeks, Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, has started attacking Trump for uh, his response on the virus, but attacking him from the right. 
it looks like one possible future for the Republican Party is that the alternative to Trump in the coming primary season will not be people who are less crazy about the pandemic, but people who are more crazy. Let's talk about Ron DeSantis. Let's also remember that when Donald Trump talked about getting vaccinated and boosted, uh, he got booed at his own rallies, right? So you can tell that there's a, there is a, a train that, that Trump put on the track and it's now running very, very fast. And he sometimes is running to catch up with it, as are other Republicans. DeSantis is uh, kind of the worst of all players in many ways because he is a uh, he's wrongheaded in his approach. His answers are wrong. Uh, he's always against mass fan mandates. He's against vaccine mandates. Uh, he's you know he again and again undercuts the the public health response. But at the same time, he's very very authoritarian. And so uh, he's the opposite of a libertarian Republican. Uh, if there's some local school board that says, you know, look, we'd like to be a little safer here. Maybe we would have wear some masks and stuff. He's like, uh-uh, can't do that. And, you know, jumps in and, and takes away the authority of local government and local school boards to protect people. And so I write about him as, you know, kind of an example of one of the, the worst patterns in the Republican Party, which is... Um, authoritarian ignorance, authoritarian wrongheadedness. Lastly, what is to be done? Obviously, we need accountability, but we also need what you call transformational justice for the future, for the long term. What would that look like? Well, this is an important thing to understand, John, that accountability drives change. If you don't have accountability for those who have failed us, who have done wrong, deliberately or through malfeasance or incompetence, uh, then it is very hard to make the changes going forward because we keep saying, well, these things just happen. It's just chance. Well, the level of death and, and disease and financial uh, destabilization that we saw during the early stages of the pandemic, remember, it's ongoing, uh, tell us that, that without accountability, we're likely to end up in the same place again. And so my view is that, yes, if there are criminal charges that can be brought, bring them. If there are civil charges that can be brought or civil actions that can be brought, bring them. If there's congressional action that can be taken, do it. But we should also understand that the, the biggest change that we need is a societal change in which we identify those who did wrong, who failed us. And I try to do that in the book and say, they should never again be in positions of power, that this should be disqualifying politically, it should be disqualifying in the business sector. And if we, act, if we have that kind of accountability, a transformational justice aligned with you know, civil, criminal, political actions, then we create a situation where those who come in the future will not have the same impunity that a Trump and those around them had. That's the thing we have to change, John. And I read a lot about it in the book because the fact is that without a transformational justice, without accountability that leads to change, I can guarantee you, through writing about a lot of history, that we will be back in this situation again. The names may be different, but the crisis will be the same. And that is leaders who are in a position of power and authority to do good, fail to do good, because they think that there will be no accountability, no uh, reckoning 
if they serve their own political interests and their own economic interests. John Nichols, his new book is Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Caused the Crisis. John, thanks so much for this book. And thanks for talking with us today. Honored to be with you, John. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Now it's time to talk about slavery and its political legacy in Congress. Here's something we didn't know until last week. More than 1,700 congressmen owned black slaves. Even after the abolition of slavery in 1865, hundreds of men who had owned slaves were senators and members of the House. Even into the 20th century, the last senator who had owned slaves served in 1922. The extent of the power of enslavers explains a lot about racism in American history. And now the Washington Post has compiled the first database of slaveholding members of Congress. For comment, we turn to Eric Foner. Of course, he taught history at Columbia for a long time. His work on Reconstruction and the Civil War won the Pulitzer Prize, the Bancroft Prize, and the Lincoln Prize. He's also written for the New York Times op-ed page, the TLS, the LRB, and The Nation, where he's a member of the editorial board. Eric, welcome back. Thank you. Nice to see you, John. Well, you compiled the first ever list of black office holders during Reconstruction in the 1860s and 70s. Now the Washington Post has done something similar for what we could call the other side. You were able to identify more than 1,500 African-Americans who held political office in the South during the Reconstruction era. That book is called Freedom's Lawmakers, a directory of black office holders during Reconstruction. Creating that list, I know, was hard work. How did you do it? <laughs> yeah, it was hard work because uh, a, a little thing uh, known as the Internet didn't really exist when I was doing that. There was no ancestry. There was no nothing, no Google. So I had to do it the old fashioned way. That is going through uh, archival records, census reports, um, you know, letters, all sorts of things. Um, and uh, it, it was a, it took a lot of work, but I was very gratified. I was able to identify it quite a few, as you said, about 1,500 black men who held some public office. The Washington Post project was about members of Congress, as you said. My book is about all sorts, people from, you know, justice of the peace on up. 
there were uh, 14 African-Americans who served in Congress during Reconstruction, uh, 14 in the House of Representatives and two in the Senate for a total of 16. Obviously, uh, there were more slave owners than that uh, serving as, as uh, members of Congress. And as you said, it, it, these uh, figures that the Washington Post came up with, on the one hand, you might say, well, I'm not really surprised. After all, slavery was so important. And certainly in the South, if you were going to hold public office, you're a slave owner. Every, every congressman from the South just about owned a slave at some point in their life. Uh, but on the other hand, the number is probably higher than one might have expected. Yes. Yes. Uh, and it does, as you said, uh, show us something about the political power of slavery in this country, even after the abolition of slavery. A word here on terminology. The term enslavers is being used now instead of slaveholders, along with enslaved people instead of slaves. Uh, please explain the change here. This is slightly controversial. There are people who don't like using enslaved people or enslavers. I am a little uncomfortable with it because I think the word slave is a well-known word. It does not require explanation. If you say somebody was a slave or a slave owner, everybody will know what you mean by saying that. The people who want to change the terminology, uh, they, their argument is, well, somehow calling saying this person was a slave suggests that's the essence of their being. That's, that defines them. And we, we don't want to really say that. These were people, these were men, women, uh, children. They were husbands and wives. They weren't just slaves. And so we should, they were enslaved. Somebody else had put them into this category. Uh, and similarly, the slave owner uh, is now called in some circles the enslaver, that the, the active person is the person who puts you into slavery or owns you, not not the slave. So, you know, look, terminology has changed many, many times, particularly with African-Americans. I mean, you could run down our history. At first, they were called Africans around the time of the American Revolution. Colored, Negro with a small N, Negro with a, with a capital N, African-American, uh, Afro-American, now Black with a capitalized B. Uh, is widely used. So uh, there's nothing unusual about terminology changing and how different groups are described. My mentor, Richard Hofstadter, you know who he was, a great historian and a great writer, always told us, if you can use one word instead of three or four, use one. And that's the virtue of slave. <laughs> it's a simple way of describing a situation in which a person is held as a slave. That's a legal category. It's a chattel uh, situation. So I don't want to get into a debate about what we should use. I think many of these are used interchangeably yeah. nowadays. Thinking about it does help us think about the long history of slavery in this country. So I will be using them interchangeably. Enslavers in Congress the Washington Post found, represented 37 states, not just the slave states of the Old South, but they said every state in New England, much of the Midwest, and many Western states were represented by slaveholders in Congress. How could that be? Well, of course, at the beginning of the Republic, uh, there were no free states. Every state had slavery of the original 13. New York, where I live, was a slave state well into the 19th a century in terms of slavery being a legal uh, institution. And 
well-to-do people generally owned slaves. This was not an unusual thing, both in the North and in the South. If you go further West, it becomes a little more tricky because states like Illinois and uh, Ohio, let's say, it never had slavery legally when they were states. The Northwest Ordinance barred slavery in those areas. Nonetheless, slave owners did move in there, and some of them held slaves, even when it wasn't quite legal to do so. But even putting that aside, there was a lot of geographic mobility. People, you know, people from the South. Let's take Abraham Lincoln, born in Kentucky, a slave state, eventually moved into uh, Indiana and Illinois and served one term in Congress. Now, I don't think Lincoln is on their list because Lincoln never personally owned slaves, but his wife did. He married into a slave-owning family, the Todds. So Lincoln is a person who shows that's how widespread slavery was. So a lot of the people from non-slave states are people who moved in there from the South. Uh, they may not have brought their slaves with them, but they had owned slaves when they were uh, in other states. When was uh, slavery abolished in New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania? Something like 1830? Well, it, the thing is that slavery was abolished in those states very gradually. The laws that abolished slavery, which were passed during and after the American Revolution, said basically that any child born to a slave henceforth will become free like at age 21 or something like that. So no slave was actually freed by those laws, no living slave. So slavery lingered on by the 18 teens and 20s. New York still had slave owners. Even these were people now getting more elderly. The absolute abolition of slavery in New York didn't come till 1827. So before that, you could certainly have people in uh, public office who owned slaves. And again, well-to-do people, that's where they put some of their money. So then, then we have secession in 1860. And in 1861, 11 southern states seceded. And of course, their lawmakers left Congress. But I was surprised to see that more than 20 percent of the members who remained in Congress after secession, as the Civil War was being fought over slavery, over 20 percent of the members of Congress were current or former slaveholders during the Civil War. Uh, how could that be? Well, you remember that there were, first of all, these so-called border states, four significant slave states, or at least Delaware, rather small, but Kentucky, Maryland, Missouri, Delaware, all remained in the Union as slave states. Their representatives in Congress all owned slaves. Even they were not fighting for slavery. They were fighting for the Union, those states, but nonetheless, uh, their representatives were often uh, slave owners. And then uh, after the Civil War, after the abolition of slavery with the 13th Amendment, uh, and after Reconstruction, the old white supremacist ruling class came back into power in the South. And these were people who had owned slaves earlier in their lives. So it shouldn't be surprising that in the 1880s and 1890s, there were plenty of former slave owners representing Southern states. Uh, in Congress, and even, as you mentioned, into the early 20th century. Of course, there were people who served, who had been slave owners and turned against it. There were people like that and said, no, you know, we, we have changed our minds. Slavery is a terrible thing. We're glad it's been abolished. But unfortunately, a lot of white Southerners, the prominent, powerful ones, 
never made that uh, transition. And the Washington Post reported that the first woman ever to serve in the Senate was a former slaveholder. What's the story there? Rebecca Felton, she didn't serve that long in the Senate. I think it was one day, actually. It was a kind of symbolic appointment. She wasn't elected. She was appointed by the governor to fill a vacant seat while Congress was about to go out out of session. Nonetheless, she was the first woman, a white woman, of course, to hold a seat in the Senate. And But she was uh, not exactly a intersectionalist, if you might want to use that word, seeing the connection between different kinds of oppression. She had supported women's suffrage uh, in the southern states, but basically on the grounds that since there were more whites than blacks, the women's suffrage would further enhance white political power uh, in the south and uh, make it impossible for blacks to regain the power they'd had in Reconstruction. I understand she had a theory of the causes of the Civil War. Uh, She viewed the Civil War as a punishment from God for the sins of cruel masters. What did she mean by cruel masters? Yes. By the way, Lincoln said in his second inaugural that the, the war was a punishment to the nation by God for its sins. But he meant slavery was the sin. Uh, Rebecca Felton said that the sin the South was being punished for was miscegenation. That is to say, was white men engaging in sexual relations with black women producing a mixed race uh, class of people in the South. And that sin of interracial rape or whatever it was, uh, that's what the South was being punished for. Now, I have to say, when I was in college studying this period, what were the causes of the Civil War was always a question on the final exam. But acceptable answers I don't think ever included God's punishment for white enslavers having sex with their slaves. Yeah, you know, uh, it would be interesting. That question is also on the immigration questionnaire or examination that people coming from abroad who want to become American citizens have to take. I wonder how the immigration officer would respond if uh, a a new migrant from Mexico or from China or somewhere else said, well, the answer to the cause of the civil war is the uh, interracial sex in the South. Um, Probably they would be shipped back to where they came from. No, no, I understand that this same Rebecca Felton was also obsessed not just with white enslavers having sex with their black slaves, but black men having sex with white women. Apparently, that's the case. A lot of this comes from the Washington Post research itself, so we give them credit. It was black rapists she talked about, this mythology. You know, Ida B. Wells, who campaigned against lynching, always said, you know, this is a total myth, but it was used to justify lynching, including by Rebecca Felton. Uh, say lynching was perfectly justified, in fact, necessary in order to prevent black men from raping, supposedly, uh, all these white women. In Wilmington, North Carolina, this was one of the causes of the Wilmington riot of uh, 1898, uh, where uh, the local newspaper had uh, said, you know, this whole had said that this was a total myth, the idea of black rapists running amok but went on to say, you know, it's actually the case that some white women actually love black men and are perfectly happy to have intimate relations with them. This riled up a lot of white people, including Rebecca Felton. 
And uh, the Wilmington riot uh, seized on this as one, the people who perpetrated it, uh, which led to the death of quite a few black people and the overthrow of the government of Wilmington, North Carolina. Speaking that way about interracial sex was just not acceptable in uh, incident. So Felton has a lot to answer for, the first woman. But I hesitate to say not all women members of Congress held to these uh, these views that she did. Big picture here. What is the significance of this finding, which surprised so many of us, that more than 1,700 members of Congress, senators and representatives, owned slaves or had owned slaves while they were in office or before they took office? Well, I, I think the significance is, again, it just shows the political power of slavery and the long afterlife of slavery. We can assume, even though there were some who changed their mind, no question, we can assume that most of these former slave owners didn't think there was anything wrong with, with their having owned slaves. It, it, it shows the depth and the, the longevity of racist views and pro-slavery views uh, in American history. And I think it does shed light all the way down to the present. Today, there is nobody in Congress who owned a slave. I think it's fair to say that. But there are not a heck of a lot of black people either in Congress, nor have there ever been. Uh, I think, according to the trustee Wikipedia, about 160 black men and women have held positions in Congress in all of American history, 160 of them, whereas 1,700 slave owners. And of course, the vast majority of the blacks are in the last 20, 30 years since the civil rights movement. You know, yeah, it shows the power of slavery, something that is a key factor in American history. Eric Foner, you can read the Washington Post report and look at their database. There's still many dozens of congressmen who they're not sure about, and they've requested that readers provide information. And this is an ongoing uh, project at the Washington Post. Eric, thanks for talking with us today. Great to talk to you, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.